If you haven't done it yet, take your Bibles, or those of you that have electronic devices, you can search Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, and uh, I'm sure it'll pull up real quick for you. If you're in your, have your Bible, just go to the Old Test, beginning of the New Testament, go back into the Old Testament, three books, you go Malachi, uh, Zechariah, and then we'll be there at Haggai. If you get to Zephaniah, you went too far. Um, so just keep that in, that in mind as well. And we're in Haggai. And next week, last week, we actually took a look at uh, verse 1, chapter 1. We just kind of did the kind of a background of, of Haggai as we, looked at the, as we looked at the book. And we began to kind of lay the fr- uh, groundwork for some of the things that were, that were going on. All right, make sure I got the right, the right deal. So, so just way of introduction this morning, let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at last week. Um, this was a chart last week and we kind of narrowed it in. We looked at all the prophets and the kings. And if you remember right, right now when Haggai comes in, Haggai's coming in at the year 520 BC. We've had the 70 years of captivity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon's come in and captured uh, Judah. And they've taken many back to the to the. To Babylon, and in, in 538, Cyrus, uh, the Medes and the Persians, uh, they had captured uh, or they had conquered Babylon. In 538, Cyrus, king, king uh, at the time, he allows uh, Jews to return to Israel uh, or to, back to Judah. And uh, in, in the process, Zerubbabel, you probably have heard of him, as well as Josiah, who was the high priest, they lead the people back. They begin to build the work on the temple. The temple work gets started. In fact, they get as far as laying the foundation. But then there's a 16-year delay, and what took place was opposition. Uh, some, of the, some of the northern kingdom had been captured by, well, the northern kingdom had been captured, and some of the people had been uh, spread throughout. You had Assyrians coming and living in the area, and so you had you had uh, the Jews marrying into other uh, peoples and, and, and embracing some of their gods and, and so forth. In fact, in that area, we get the, some of those terms are uh, Samaritans when we look at the New Testament. Well, they offered to help with the building of the temple. Uh, Judah refused. Judah understood the fact that they had been marrying into other nations and they were allowing other religions to seep into the, to their belief, belief in Judaism. And so they refused. Well, they ended up creating problems and opposition and, and so forth. When they, when they started, there was a tremendous, I mean, the people were on fire. They were ready to go until that opposition came. You can go to Ezra, the book of Ezra, and you can read the first six chapters and it describes that time and what was going on. So now it's 16 years later and here God's people in Judah, here they are, they're building their houses. They're, they're just kind of going about life. But over there laying on the, in ruins is God's temple. He calls it his house. And God raises up. In fact, he raised up Haggai and also his a contemporary of Haggai's was Zechariah. You can read in Zechariah about some of those things. He raises up Haggai. And, and God does that, doesn't he? Throughout the history of humanity, God has had his prophets. He's had his people who he raises up, who, who deliver God's message to to, if you will, wake up his people or to, to bring about revival or bring about change or direction about who God is. He's, he's always done that. Well, Haggai is the one that he sends in at this time in 520 BC. If you, if you were to look, if we were to look at the whole book of, of Haggai, 
You would see it's basically five messages, and some would say four. So if we went to the verse we looked at last week, we saw it was the first day of the sixth month, which would be equivalent to August 29th in our calendar, just to give an, give an idea. The second date, or some would say the second message is in verse 15 of chapter one, which went in the 24th day of the sixth month, which had been separate, uh, September 21st. 24 days separated these, these two days right here, these two mentions. And today we're gonna actually look at that passage. What we see today happened within a 24 day period. Some would say this second message is really part of the first and that this second account in verse 15 is when Israel uh, or Judah raised up and said, hey, we're gonna go back and they started building and working on the temple. His third message we'll look at the next week starts in chapter two, verse one. It was uh, about October 17th. Then we'll see a fourth message in verse 10 um, of the second chapter, equivalent about December 18th. And then the fifth one's on the same day in verse 20, and it's December 18th. Just kind of give you an idea that in a, just a very short period of time, what we see taking place in Haggai is, is just within a, just a few days, 24 days in the first section with the whole book within four months, which I find really incredible that as God moves and as God works, and when we as his people respond, God can do amazing things quickly, can't he? Amen? God is able. Um, I, I think one of the things that really challenged me a lot about this passage is faith. I, I, be, I'm, I believe that in a God, an almighty God, and a person of faith, and yet some of the things I realized that have creeped into my own life and have have, um, have really sometimes been acts of, of not of faith, acts of self or acts of my own desires. And, and this passage has just challenged me so intimately. And I pray, man, I pray, I was praying this morning just that um, some of the things that God has touched in my own, own heart doesn't prevent the message that I proclaim. Sometimes, you know, uh, there's a place when we, face God's word for conviction, right? That we need to be convicted. But that's different than condemnation. Let's, let's settle that today. Condemnation Jesus took care of on the cross through his death, his burial and resurrection in Romans 8, 1, it tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are walking in Christ Jesus. Jesus took care of the condemnation. He took care of the death. He took care of sin. He took care of those things on the cross. But there is a place for conviction, dear people of God. There's times when God confronts us and he confronts us head on about our own way of life. Our own attitudes about life. And how do we put God into the middle of life? We get used to hearing that alarm ring on Monday morning and we get up and then we're off to work where we begin our daily activities and Tuesday's not much different and then there's Wednesday and then there's Thursday, there's Friday, there's Saturday. We come on Sunday morning and, and we, we draw in corporately and we acknowledge God, but, but we need to challenge our ways. And God does that with his people here in a, in a way that is, is very point blank and yet very clear. If you will, in Haggai chapter one, since last week we looked at verse one, I wanna pick up in verse two. It says in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
That's an amazing statement. And boy, I found great challenge in my own heart that in their process of not building the temple, they come to the conclusion that it isn't time yet. And God confronts their sin right here. And there's a time for confrontation of sin, isn't there? We don't like to talk about confronting sin in our day and age. We don't like to talk about that because we feel like it's condemning. But please understand that Jesus on the cross, through his death, his burial, and resurrection, dealt with the condemnation. But dear people of God, we need to be a people who set ourselves apart unto a holy God. As living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. So there's a place for confrontation. And God confronts his people right here in chapter one and verse two of Haggai. And he says, these people say the time has not yet come. They're not saying that they're against the rebuilding. Catch that. They're not saying we don't think this building should be built. They're just saying it's not time yet. They give these excuses of ideas of why they shouldn't. Because it's just not time. And I think many times I find myself not against the work of God, but sometimes I just think it's not time for the work of God. Can we just be honest as humans, we're really good at giving excuses. I found that in my own life, that it's really easy to, to kind of lay out a reason why now isn't the time, or it's really easy to say why we shouldn't go this direction especially when it came to the things of God. We need to examine our hearts about the excuses that we have in our lives where we put off the work of God. In verse two, their excuse was brilliant. They just said, it's not time yet. We'll get to it. Just give us a little bit longer, God. We'll eventually get it done. It's eventually gonna happen. But one of the things that struck me in verse two that has been kind of a, just a, kind of caught me off guard for lack of a better way. Look what he says, thus in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, think about what he just said. These people. What jumped out at me from that, from that, those, that phrase was every time I read where God talked about Israel or Judah or his people, he says, my people, my people who call me by my name. My people, the people of God. And here he says, these people. And it struck me how easy it is in the, in the walks of our lives when we begin to create those excuses, excuses that distance begins to happen. It had been 16 years earlier, they were excited about returning to, to Israel or to Judah, they were excited about returning to Jerusalem. They were excited about building God's temple. They began to lay out the foundation, but things got hard, things got tough. Opposition began to rise. And then things got to put off. And they got put off. And they got put off. We do that in our walks, folks. I, I do. I've been a believer for a long time. And I get in these habits, right? And I can justify, well, I read my Bible every day. I, I study and I pray. And yet we kind of do that, just kind of meet these requirements without the relationship. And we start growing distance and we lose sight of what God is attempting to do through his people in this place and this time. And we begin to grow distant. 
And then when those things happen in our lives and we crawl out to God and we wonder why he's so distant, it's probably because we begin to pursue our own ways and our own prosperity. Man, it, it really struck me when he said these people, these people who have been acting one way but saying something else, they've been saying, yeah, we gotta build the temple, but everything in their lives was showing just the opposite. And their excuse of it's not time is not much different than our excuses. How many times have we said we're just too busy with work? We've got our kids, there's just so much going on. I've heard students, I've got so much homework. I'll have time after this season of, of sports or whatever it is that we're going on, I'll have time after that. And all the excuses that we give for why it's not time. And God calls them out in, his, in their hypocrisy and he calls us out in our hypocrisy too. How many times I've wondered and thought, well, God, this, this can't be you leading when it, when it is him. And we put it off. We put it off. People, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to condemn this morning. I, I, I want to challenge I want, I want to see God move in such a way that, that everybody in our neighborhood and everybody in our community just kind of goes, wow, that's God doing that. I don't want everybody ever to say because the elders at NBC, this great da-da-da-da, God forbid. But that God would raise up his people for his work, for his purposes and his plans. But it cannot happen when God's people are distracted. It cannot happen when God's people are busy in other things. And if God challenges your heart this morning, may our hearts be open. Maybe we be ready to hear what God has to say to us. Maybe be ready to, to open those doors that we don't want open in our lives that, that maybe God or the Holy Spirit's been kind of knocking on. And may we have the courage and maybe we be brave answer those doors, those knocks. This is exactly what was going on at this time when Haggai pulled up. When God sends him to, to proclaim this message. Look at verses three and four. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now this one stopped there. You know, as a kid, we used to do these little and I know kids do today. I'm going to show my age, right? And so you do these little things and whenever someone trumps somebody, you kind of go, ooh, oh, you know, where we used to do that little deal because God, you know, the person gave this, this response. Well, don't think that's just what God's doing here. He's not trying to trump. We're outsmart, we're cr criticized. God is addressing a hard issue. And God's saying, hey, my house is laying in ruins and there's no time for it, but you have time for your homes. You have time for your ways. You have time for your purposes. Man, it's just, it's just a contrast. He totally contrasts them and, and confronts them in the midst of their voices and what they're saying. They're saying one thing, but they're doing another. And that's exactly what's going on. Sometimes we need quiet and I just, I just pray that God is moving in your heart. 
How many times have, have we heard where somebody says, hey, you want to serve the Lord? You want to pursue his kingdom, his righteousness? How about being generous to the work of God? And how many times we say, not, not now, Lord. Not now, it's not time. I'm too busy, I don't have time. And how often we leave after church and we run out in our own self-indulgence of luxury and the things of this world. And the thing that God struck me this week is, is like he said, Greg, do you think you're fooling me? Do we think we're fooling God when we, when we say we have no time and we, we say that it's not the time and yet we leave and we have time for this and we have time for that and we have time for this and we have time for that. But then when God calls on us, not now, God. Now's not the time. I don't say these things, dear people of God, without feeling my own Shame. And the shame's not the right word. My own struggle. And the way that in my own heart, there's times where I've rationalized and I've given excuses and, and I've put God off on different things. Have we done that? Someone recently challenged me when I made the comment that I feel like, you know, sometimes God's just calling me to wake up the church. And they said to me, hey, well, are you saying that God, are you saying that the church is asleep? And I said, I don't know. I mean, look at our community. Look at our world. I mean, are we, so, are we so confident to think that somehow that, that we're going to raise up a generation after us if we're not committed to God's word, if we're not praying, if we're not about the work of God, that the next generation that raises up and they don't love the work of God? It really struck me. It challenged me as a father. It challenged me as a husband. It challenged me as a servant of God. I don't say these things to condemn. I say these things that conviction might happen, that we might, like Judah, respond in such a way that God, the work of God takes place. I mean, some of the commentators are saying their excuse had to do with the economy, that there was a struggle within their economy and it was, just, it was just poor. They didn't have the money. So it was as if they were saying they didn't have the funds to build a house. But if you look in verse, in verse three, he says, you have time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lays in ruins. And the picture of that word panel, you know, back when I was a kid, we used to put up a lot of paneling, right? But there's some ideas that this probably involved maybe like the idea of plastering. It's the idea of adding luxury to the house. Some had said maybe even a roof. And if I, after my experience going to Tanzania and some of those villages, a roof is a big deal. It's a big deal. And the picture is that they were building in the luxury into their own lives, but they were saying we don't have time. And if their excuse and the idea was that we just didn't have the funds or the, the money wasn't there, yet you found a way to put the luxury paneling on your homes. And man, I, I was just struck, God, how many times do I not give you my best? 
How easy it is to go through life and go, well, I, I need this over here, God, because I really want this plan. I want to accomplish this. And what's really happening here is this idea of there's a priority of self-indulgent or personal prosperity over the house of God. That the God's house is laying in ruins over their own personal priority of their own indulgence and prosperity. And I went, man, God, you're speaking to our day. I know this is an Old Testament passage, but you're speaking to our day and our time. Have we, as God's people, made the priority of our lives about our own comfort, about our own luxury, about our own prosperity over the work of God, over what God wants to do in our day and our time? I believe there's a principle here out of the passage, and let me see if I can pull it up. Principle is the condition of their hearts, of Judah's hearts, was directly related to their attitude towards God's temple. In other words, God knew the attitude of their hearts because he could see about their attitude towards his temple. Their attitude towards his temple reflected their attitudes towards him. Now, I know this is the Old Testament and the temple was a big deal because it represented the presence of God, the manifestation of God among his people. Because today, God dwells in our hearts by his spirit. We are the temple of God. But in those days, the temple was a manifestation of God's presence among them. And there it laid in ruins. So what's the application for us today? As I begin to think of kind of the new covenant, our principle is our heart condition is directly related to our attitude towards God's kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. On all these things will be added to you. In the context of, of looking at the field and seeing the flowers and you see the bird of the air and do they toil and turn? Do they, do they contemplate where the next will come? God provides for them. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you. The kingdom there, in fact, it was interesting as you looked in the New Testament, really has to do with the gospel, the proclamation of it, the building of his kingdom through, the, through people coming to Christ. So our application is, I can really tell the attitude of my heart by how I directly relate my attitude towards the work of God. It really struck me. When Jesus is saying, seek first, seek the kingdom of God, seek... Seek where moth and rust and thieves do not steal and moth and rust do not destroy, but seek treasure in the heavenly places where neither thief can steal nor moth nor rust can, can destroy. It's a basic principle that is a very important one for us to understand in our pursuit of the kingdom of God. When we think about what God's doing in our life and the way that he's working, it's a principle of this passage that, that is so important for us to embrace, to understand as God confronts their sin, as God confronts their excuses. And I begin to think, really, what is behind some of this idea that it's not time? When they're saying it's not time yet, what is some of the ideas that I found in my own life? And I begin to think procrastination, self-indulgence, laziness, self-prosperity, but if you really want to be honest, idolatry. That's what was behind their misplaced passions and their misplaced priorities of the God of he, God's people here. 
What our passage makes so clear is that they were willing to make excuses in order to vote to their own prosperity in their own ways. The old covenant for them, what they were doing about God's house was directly related to their heart towards God. In our new covenant, none of us, what are we doing? What is our heart attitude towards the kingdom of God, towards the work of God? What are the excuses that we use to neglect the work of God in our own lives? God has a work that he wants to accomplish through his people. And that work isn't accomplished when our pursuits and our priorities are our own ways in our own lives. In verses, verse five, he goes on, he says, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I'm gonna look at that a little bit more in a minute. Literally ideas to examine your, your ways, your hearts, your motives. In verse six, he says, you have so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your feel. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Man, how long is those wages gonna last if you're putting them in a bag of holes, right? The picture here is whether it's, whether God was bringing hardship, and sometimes I think he does that. I think sometimes God takes the physical out of our life in order for us to grow in the spiritual. He, he gathers us into himself that we quit putting our faith and our trust in those things that we might put our faith and trust in God Almighty. But I also think it has the idea of that burning lust and that burning desire to have those things. Whether it's clothes, whether it's that house, or whether it's that, that job, or, or more money, or whatever it is. And there's never an end, there's never a place of satisfaction. I'll be honest with you folks, I was kind of afraid to say that to you this morning. Because sometimes I think we do get satisfied. We put our trust in what we have in our banking account than in an almighty God who is from everlasting to everlasting. 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine talks about giving and it tells us there, we can't outgive God. We can't outgive him. He will sustain, he will keep his people. But when we cheat God, we cheat ourselves. And that was what was going on here. They were cheating God, they were ignoring his house and there was hardship that was coming as a result. There was not a satisfaction that they had in life. In fact, I really begin to think about this, that when we begin to pursue our own ways and we begin to pursue our own prosperity and we begin to cheat ourselves, we're never really satisfied. But when we pursue God, when we have a place where he's our priority and we're setting our hearts on him, that there is satisfaction. And I thought, do we really believe that? Have we listened to the lies of our adversary, Satan? Have we listened to our own lies and the lies of our culture to a place that we don't believe that anymore? That we put our satisfaction in a place where we live. We put our satisfaction in the things that we attain. We put our satisfaction in the world over Christ. And we find him not as the source. So we'll speak it just like Israel did or Judah did. Oh, yeah, it's, we'll build the temple. Give us some time. I 
still believe in God, but man, as long as that checking account, it sure makes it easier to believe in God, right? And sometimes God, he takes those things away and it's what he's talking about here in verse six. He's talking about those things that never satisfy. In verse seven, God really begins to challenge their disobedience. He, he, he's confronted their sin. Now he really starts to challenge their disobedience in verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In fact, it's interesting that phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts, 14 times is used in the book of Haggai. 247 times in the prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Let us hear what he says. Consider your ways. That, that idea to consider your ways literally means to put your heart on the road. When I first read that, I was like, what? Put your heart on the road? What does he mean by that? It literally means to put your heart in the direction you're going. To set your heart on your ways. God is asking Judah, the people of God here, he's asking them, consider your ways. As you have set me to the side and you've put the priority of your life as your own play, on your own prosperity and your own ways, what have you gained? Verse six says, you're still putting money into bags with, with holes. You're, you're still not having enough clothes. You're not having enough drink. You're not having enough to eat. There's not enough. What have you gained? What have you satisfied? Consider your ways. Where have you set your heart on your ways? It's literally an idea of a self-examination of the true direction of our hearts and what we have gained as a result. And I, I was really struck with this idea, of the, this idea of this, literally, how can we expect our children to read their Bibles if we're not? How can we expect to have homes of prayer if we're not praying? How can we expect another generation to rise up and to love the church and honor those within it when we're complaining and criticizing over and over the church and we put it down to number five or number six or even lower on our priorities of things to do? And we wonder why a generation rises up who cares not about the church and the work of God and the things of God. It's not going to be a political system that's going to save us, dear people of God. It's not going to be in a social agenda. I've been saying that. It's going to be when God's people, empowered by God's spirit, walk after God and his ways and his purposes, a people of prayer, a people who know his word, a people who understand that they are a light in this generation, in this time, fellowshipping within the body of Christ, and carrying out the work of God, can there be change? I'm not waiting until November. I don't care what happens, no, I do, but I mean, I don't. <laughs> if I said I didn't, I would have several of you, like Greg, right? I'm not putting my hope on November. Can I say that? I'm putting my hope on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But consider your ways, dear people of God. Where have you placed your hearts? Where have you placed your directions? Consider your ways. Consider your hopes. Again, I want to emphasize, my words aren't to condemn. Jesus took care of that. 
My words is that by the grace of God, he brings conviction among the people of God. That God would raise us up. That he would move within our hearts. Look at verse eight. And then God says to them, go up to the, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I love this statement here. He says, go up and build my house. Go up and get wood and build my house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it. That I may be glorified in it. I began to think about that a lot. You know, in the Old Testament, the house of God, the temple, it represented God's bringing his, his people bringing sacrifices. And it was by through a priest and they would meet with God and they would get right with God. And then the temple also was the example of the beauty of the glory of God in their midst. And we don't have a temple today. We are the temple of God, his people. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's why I think that passage in Romans chapter 12 is so important to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. That how we live our lives is important as we set ourselves apart, we're not, we're not having to bring a sacrifice to the temple anymore, but every day that we yield ourselves to God and his ways, we are demonstrating that he is God. And it brings him glory. I believe we've been created for his glory. And that when God's people yield themselves to an almighty God and they recognize his ways, even when it doesn't fit what we see with our eyes, but we recognize his ways and we incorporate his ways into our lives, it brings him glory. And that we as his people must pursue him because when we pursue our own ways and our own prosperity, we'll be found wanting. We'll be found wanting. Verse nine and 10, it says, you looked for much and behold, it came, so, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself in his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth was withheld to its, has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills for the, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. God is, God is saying here in this idea that, hey, these things, because you have ignored my ways, these things I've called, and we can get all tied up into the physical, you know, did my car break down because I didn't do, I mean, we, that isn't the purpose. But I do believe that God sometimes takes away the physical in order to gather us back to him spiritually. Walter Kaiser, um, oh no, let me see here. Oh yeah, here it is. Walter Kaiser said, no one cheats God without cheating himself at the same time. I love this statement, it's so true. When you cheat God, you're cheating yourself because you're choosing a path whereby you think that you know the right way. You've been created by God, for God. He's our creator. How else can we know how we ought to live? We talked about this when we went through our Identity in Christ series, where we go to the creator because he knew the purpose for which we were created. 
And that when we understand for which we have been created, we understand how we ought to live. So when we choose our own ways and our own prosperity, we're not cheating God. You think God is fooled by it? We're cheating ourselves. Walter Kaiser is an Old Testament scholar and is really a good one. I'd encourage anything he wrote. So we need to quit trusting in our plenty and trust in the one who gives. That's why he said, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Man, I was, I just, some really simple things this week as I begin to think about that, about like, like the times that I give to God when I pray. Do I just kind of pray at my convenience or do I set a, sign, a time to pray? I started getting up earlier over the last two or three weeks as this passage really began to generate in my heart and giving God some of my best. We do that with all kinds of things, whether it's our prayers, whether it's our time in his word, our finances, our gifts, our talents. We use them in so many different ways, but how do we use them? They're just powerful, powerful steps of faith is what it is when I give God my time. You know, I'm praying. I was praying this week specifically, and I, I had to write down some things here that, I, that I've been praying that God would touch our hearts during this time. That God would give us honesty. That God would give us courage. That if there might be some dark places in our lives where the light of God needs to shine in, we would open those doors. That he would open some eyes that thought they could truly be satisfied by living for self and for the things of the world. That God's spirit would move among our hearts that we would be honest when we're living more for the world than we are for Jesus. That we have not necessarily been faithful to him. That we've honestly been saying one thing but living another. That God would give us the courage and say, God, you're right. You're right. And I want my life to be renewed. I want my church to be renewed. I want there to be revival in my heart, God. And man, I just was this week, I was just saying, God, start with me. You can't do anything about my spirituality and I can't do anything about yours. But start with me. That he would start with each one of us. Look at verse 12. Conviction must lead to change. And it says in verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and, and Josiah, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen to what it says, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And then notice, and the people feared the Lord. I thought about this, I was thinking, what if, what if this were to happen here? Where this process of things that are going on where God confronted sin and convicted it and he confronted our, our, our disobedience and, and then he begins to stir up within us and we hear his voice and we begin to obey that voice and just, you know, seat by seat, aisle by aisle, home by home. We could not hold back the waters of revival. We could not hold back the work of what God had did if we would set our hearts aside for those things. 
Sometimes God brings a message like Haggai that just stirs us up. It's like God's shaking us and he says, get up, my child, it's time to go to work. We feel that nudge in our lives of the Holy Spirit and we say, Lord, there's a pandemic, you know? There's a recession. I mean, there's hate and there's division like I've never seen before. And God says, it's all right, I'm greater than those things. Get up, my people, get up and go to work. Seek first the kingdom of God. Man, I was just struck with that. I was just praying that. You know, the idea of the word fear there literally means reverence, awe, admiration, and submission to God. It is the foundation of all spiritual growth, an awe of God. Some would turn that into this fear and worried about being punished. That's not the idea. It's an awe about who God is. When we realize who he is and who we are, we yield ourselves to him. We submit ourselves to him. And that's what God's people did. It says in verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And God says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Amen. God is with you. You draw near to God. And what does he do? He draws nigh to you. He draws near to you. And I think one of the reasons why when those times of struggle and we reach out to God and we go, where are you, God? Where are you? Because we've been distancing ourselves by choosing our own ways and our own prosperity. And in those moments when we need him, we cry out to him and we think, oh, he's not there. And God reminds us, you draw near to me and I draw near to you. I am with you, declares the Lord. He hasn't changed his ways. He hasn't changed his purposes. He is with us. He stirs us up. In fact, in verse 14, he says that, he says there, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shital, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. He stirred them up and they responded. They responded in faith. Look, Look what it says. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Isn't that great? They came and they worked. They went from indifference to the battle of doing the work of God. In fact, I want to show one last slide and I'll close with this. When you look at Haggai chapters one, chapter one, verses one through 15, you see these kind of four things on. God confronts sin and he challenges their hearts of disobedience. Some of you this morning, God may have confronted you. Maybe the spirit has even moved in your heart. Don't ignore that. If your heart grows hard and you continue in your way, it'll stop there and there'll just be this distance that'll continue with your God. And it says, but they responded with reverence or fear of the Lord. That's that's your decision. That's a step of faith this morning. How do you respond to God? Those nudges that God gives in your life. How are you gonna respond? It's crucial. It's an act of faith. And then God declares he is with them and he stirs them up. And I believe this so, so, so much to be true that God is near to us. If we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And he stirs us up with his work, his plans and his purposes. And they respond with passion. And you know what? They got to work. They went about to build the temple. And some of you are like, well, Greg, we don't have a temple over there laying in ruins. What are we supposed to be doing today? You know, we did that series on Jesus follower. And we talked about 
what does it look like to abide in Jesus? Well, we definitely need to abide in him. We definitely need to be a people of prayer. If you haven't been praying, pray more. If you've only been praying once a week, pray twice a week. Pray more, seek your God. Spend time in his word. Hear what he has to say. But one of the things I wanted to challenge you with as I close this morning, I wanted to challenge you with evangel- evangelistic prayer. What do I mean by that? Some of you, when you're driving into work, there's someone you're working with, begin praying. On your way to or on your way home, pick someone out and just start praying. Praying for them, praying for God's work in their life, praying how God's gonna work, opportunities to share the gospel, opportunities to, that God would have as inroads into their life. Something else I would encourage you to do this week, just take one day, take your family, go sit on your porch, maybe in your front yard, put out lawn chairs and just sit there and start going up and down the road around your house. Pray for this house, then that house, then that house, then that house, that one. Pray over them. Pray for God's work in their lives. Pray for salvation. Begin to evangelistically work out in your community through prayer. Maybe get up and just walk down the street and pray over each home. And just begin to do that. I challenge you to do that once this week. Do it with your kids. I, I was so moved a couple of weeks ago to hear that some of our students in our student ministry wanted to just go out and just to pray with people. Wanted to go to the park, just start praying with people. They didn't care if any adults went with them or not. We need adults to go with them. But they, they were just so moved because they wanted to go, to go pray over people. I was so moved by that. I was so challenged by that. May we as parents, may we as adults at Mansfield Bible Church be challenged by that and let's start praying for our neighbors. If you're praying once already a week, make it two days a week. Have a picnic on your front lawn. If they walk by, invite them. Or just simply ask them, how can I pray for you? You don't have to, you don't have to give them the gospel. You don't have to invite them inside. Just say, how can I pray for you? I care about you. I care about you. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I give you the words today just to move among your people, your spirit. May our hearts have been challenged, Father, today. But Father, more importantly, out of all of it, may you give us the courage in those areas where we've been challenged not to walk out of this building and kind of shut the door on that. Give us the strength and the wisdom, Father, to act on it. Help us, Father, to be lights in our community. If that's by prayer, Father, open up. We do not understand, God, the things that you can do when we simply ask you. When we simply step out in faith and believe. May you, Father, bind us together by your spirit and use us, Father, in our community for your glory and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.